Okay, check this out. This is uh, the January 6th hearings, day 9, on Midas Touch. It's apparently live. Oh, it's live in 26 hours, darn. on it anyway, on the live chat, but can't, I can't do that. <laughs> Liz Cheney. Hmm. Anyway, welcome back to the Christopher Gabinette show and shout out to KMP Student Radio. At the University of Arizona, Arizona, into stoned. Nine days ago. Hmm. Where did this civilization? Oh, here's Michael Tellinger. This is new, nine days ago. Where did the civilization come from? The biggest of all ancient mysteries. This sounds good. Quarter of a billion years old. No matter how disconnected you may feel from the madness of the modern world, no matter how distant... Michael Tellinger is on Gaia. He's he's the one who's doing that great research in South Africa. The study of ancient human history and, and the kind of... Um, Adam's uh, calendar thing that it has when you jump into that side of the swimming pool and body of information and you start researching this stuff. Uh, one, it doesn't take a long time to realize that as you start scratching away the, the surface information and shedding the textbooks from university and delving into this alternative literature, um, that things are not as they seem. And I think each and every yeah. one of you already knows For that. Sure, man. Had that experience, and you really got to go to university. And I studied pharmaceutics. Uh, spent five years at medical school in Johannesburg, learning about the body and, and the effect of drugs and that kind of stuff. And uh, and then uh, I even spent two years selling drugs, legal drugs, over the counter, um, only to realise that that's not really what I wanted to do, and that's not my calling in life. So. Uh, when I realized that there was this other, other whole alternative area of information literature that's not necessarily respected by the established academic institutions, it became very exciting because it suddenly felt like I found you know, the, the Ark of the Covenant and discovered this, this um, illegal stuff that you can get in your hands into. Um, so one of the things that, that, that hits you first is things are not as they seem. And then the other thing is because when you start researching this ancient human history, origins of humankind, ancient culture, civilizations, where did it all begin? Why are we here? Who are we? Where do we come from? What does it all mean? And it all starts to cross over. And it's very quickly you realize how everything, every bit of information crosses over everything else. And I'm talking about from 
you know, from the biblical scriptures to other ancient civilizations and their scriptures to astronomy, to archaeology, to metaphysics, to quantum physics, to basic history, to medicine, to anatomy, to weird, wishy-washy stuff called um, psychic ability and stuff like that. And, And you just realize how everything is connected and you might find this one little piece of information here that is completely and utterly removed from what you what it is you're searching and lo and behold a few months later you find exactly where that piece fits and that's really been a very exciting journey of discovery for me personally is to find how you've got to keep an open mind at all times and you've got to stretch your imagination and read every little piece of information that comes across your desk and however strange a little book or an email from somebody may be as weird and out of this world as it may seem somehow sometimes it catches you by surprise and gives you that really amazing piece of information. It happens to me almost on a daily basis. So everything is related. And then actually it leads to a third, my holy trinity of, of wisdom, which I've conjured up. And the third one is, I um, wasn't bold enough to put it here tonight because you're a really wise audience, um, is everything we've been told is a lie. And I'm going to show you why I say that. Because... We got to ask ourselves, how much do we really know about human history? Okay, we, we throw out these things all the time. We throw out, we make these statements on a daily basis. Oh, it's not economically viable, or you know, you're an individual, you're entitled to your own opinion, and all these kind of things. By the way, all of these are all not really true, but that's another presentation. If history is written by the victors, and we say this all the time, history is written by the victors, history is written by the victors. What does it really mean? Stop, think about what it means, and put it into context. How can we put this into context? Who are the victors? The church. Scientific sense out of it. So let's first go back and, and analyze who we think we are right now based on current levels of information. We're told that we're the, we're the sort of pinnacle of civilization that started somewhere in Sumeria and or Sumer around 6,000 years ago. And our teachers and academics and history books tell us that we've pretty much learned everything we know or inherited everything we, thing we know from the Sumerians. You know, from astronomy, astrology, architecture, Beer, agriculture, language, uh, money, writing. We've, we've inherited from the Sumerians. The royal... And, uh, a so royal you know, line. Years, right? and we're now the pinnacle, Monarchy. The smartest, the wisest. All these people before us were old. They know nothing. And, uh, and that's what most people in the world think today. Uh, luckily, it's changing very rapidly, but still, that's the, the main body of current belief. Um, let's just assume that if history is written by the victors, just by show of hands, you know, in 6,000 years, how many wars do you think we've had? Just shout out a number, anything that comes to mind in 6,000 years. Five million. <laughs> Come on, be brave. 5,000 wars. Or should we be kind to history and say we had one war per annum? Okay, in over a 6,000 year period. Just, I just need you to really contextualize this because these are very important subtleties that we don't often stop and think about. So if we had 6,000 wars in 6,000 years, how does that affect our knowledge of ancient human history, our origins, and all these things? 
Um, what you will find if you speak to statisticians or historians, they normally tell you that, well, we lose at least 50% of information um, after a conflict situation. That's what I got from doing my research. 50% uh, of information probably goes lost because those that write the history books write it with a different agenda. Okay, and they'll put in there whatever they want. And we, don't, we know very little about the people that were conquered by Alexander. They were just vile and evil and they all deserve to die. Right, so if you start putting it into a, a very basic statistical formula and a spreadsheet like this, it doesn't take long for you to realize even after event number eight, we already know less than 1% of the original truth. I'm not saying the Sumerians had the old, old truth and nothing but the truth. What I'm saying is because it's the oldest material we have, it's probably closest to the original truth that we have. So let's use that as, you know, starting point. So within, you know, how many, how many years, eight years, within eight years of the rise of the Sumerian civilization, we already know less than 1% of the original truth. What I particularly like is when you come down and you get to this, this very nice number, 124th event, 124th conflict. So it's only, only 124 years into civilization. We have that long, lovely number there. And I like that number because that's also known as Planck's constant, 10 to the minus 34. And essentially what this tells us is by the time we get to event 124, we already know less about our human origins than is permissible by the laws of physics. How many subscriptions are you paying for? Rocket Money finds sneaky or forgotten subscriptions and makes canceling them than is permissible by the laws of physics. And that's an interesting thing to contemplate. You know, so just let's put that into context. So if we say, or if I say that we know nothing about our human history, I'm already starting to believe that, and I really do believe that, that everything we've been taught is a lie because it's just a convoluted distortion after distortion after distortion. And we've got to be very, very careful about what we believe about all the stuff in the past. What we do know from science is that we live in an electromagnetic universe where everything vibrates and spins. And these are very important things, very important principles from the smallest atomic and subatomic structures, everything vibrates and spins. And in fact, you know, we told that the only reason this, this universe exists because of the spin and the vibration of all matter in it. If it stopped vibrating and stopped spinning, it would just disappear and there'd be this weird ethereal kind of energy left behind, which we don't quite understand. You know, some people go and call it God or whatever, the divine being. I'm not so sure about that because there's some other interesting things that happen, um, which is what I'm working with uh, on, on our new book, Secret Numbers of God, with the brilliant Willem de Swart. But um, that's something else again. But everything vibrates and spins, and and the planets vibrate around the, our sun just like the atoms and have the electrons and all the other subatomic particles going crazy. Quantum physicists will tell you a whole bunch more about that because it, it seems that it does. It's not really actually there, and um, it's the act of observation that actually makes it appear, and all these really weird things that we're starting to discover. And uh, and then we look at the the galaxies that spin and vibrate, and then we realize that it's not only our the, the atoms and the things that spin and vibrate, and the planets around the sun, but our whole gal our whole solar system is also 
actually spinning through space as it travels through space. Our solar system isn't just traveling through space. There's the sun, planets going around it. It's the, the whole solar system is doing this as well, and it keeps crossing the crossing the galactic plane. And with that come very interesting things that happen throughout the ages. And and then we have the giant spin and the, the whole torus effect and, and, and motion of the entire universe that, that creates this weird energy that they call dark energy and dark matter and they still are arm wrestling about what is it does it exist or doesn't it exist so the point is that everything spins and vibrates and and then we get this beautiful this beautiful graph that shows us the electromagnetic universe and on the left you got these very very long waves uh, cosmic waves and these are so long that some they actually look like straight lines on the other side you got the pico waves and all the the gamma rays that are very very high frequency um energies and then this graph is quite nice because it, it, it mentions some very interesting things it tells you at, at which frequency a rugby field vibrates it's really important that we know that and, <clears throat> so it's a lovely thing to throw out over a drink so did you know the rugby field vibrates at uh, 10 to the 6 or is it 10 to the 4 um hertz um, and see what happens um but what's very important about the reason i'm showing you this is because this shows us that Bacteria, protozoa, viruses, and and those nasty organisms that cause a lot of disease also vibrate at specific frequencies. And um, hmm. this we've known for a long time, and we're learning more and more about it. This is actually, I'll go more into this in, in, in the longer workshop. But so if you vibrate when, when at you the frequency of the good, like it gets really confusing because bacteria, what we do is we take something that's actually whatever. a living three-dimensional, multi-dimensional effect and we we you know, put it on a piece of paper like a to like this wave. Well, that's a three, you know, that's an electromagnetic universe and it actually causes a lot of confusion. I know it, it caused a lot of confusion with me when somebody first showed me that. Well, how does that work? There's this line that's... You know, because it's actually, that's not how it looks and that's not how it works, but that's how they show it to us on a piece of paper. And I think by even these little tiny things that we do by trying to illustrate what this electromagnetic universe looks Here's like. Here's what I think of Trump. Here's where Trump's going. Damage to somebody because they're trying to re you know, spend Trump the rest of their life trying to figure out what the hell does this mean, this line here. And, uh, you know, it's actually, if you turn it sideways, it's actually a spiral, right? So... And it just goes from the teeniest, teeniest, teeniest little point of singularity, whatever you want to call it, and it just, the spiral goes on and on, and, and, and very quickly you realize that all these frequencies are actually connected, and, and nothing is separate. So right in the beginning when I said everything is connected, it's directly linked to this vibrational frequency of the electromagnetic universe. And then we get into some very interesting things. Um, for, oh, sorry, before we get there, very importantly, uh, note the, that little thin sliver over there, right in the middle, um, that's the visible light. That's the light that our eyes can see. That's it. That's what our DNA allows us to see right now. And that's just a teeny weeny sliver of this electromagnetic spectrum. But, strangely enough, we have this organ in our brain called the pineal gland, which is actually the third eye, and that's actually equipped to pick up all these other frequencies and these other vibrations that, that are out there in the universe. And personally, I believe that that is actually the thing that we should be using, that little organ that has somehow been disconnected. 
and uh, you know, I'm not going to go into details why, who disconnected it and so forth, but um, it's, it's really a frequency receptor, the pineal gland. It's pretty much like your eye, it's got similar uh, internal organs and things, but it just doesn't have a lens and therefore it doesn't need to be on the surface. It could, and it's perfectly protected and implanted in the middle of your head where it can perform its function and give you things like extrasensory perceptive abilities and etc, etc. Um, with the discoveries of the Russians recently in recent years about the fact that the DNA is actually a receptor and a transmitter and it's linked to the to the pineal gland, obviously it's linked to everything, we now start to understand that there's this, this feedback mechanism that starts to happen with this this um, primordial creative light that seems to come from the galactic center, I might be jumping a little bit, that you know, stimulates the DNA, uh, which stimulates the pineal gland, and you, you've got this feedback effect that suddenly people are finding themselves waking up all over the world. It's an unstoppable part of this thing called this growth explosion of consciousness. And, and I think it's important that people understand why. Shout out to KPYT, Pasquayaki Tribal Radio. It's important that people understand why that is happening. It's, we can't control it. It's just happening all over the place. And it, uh, it must be quite frightening for people that are really deeply you know, religious or dogmatic about whatever their belief system is. And suddenly they wake up one morning and they can see things and hear things because it's just a natural evolutionary process that we're all going through, speeding up. And they freak out. They think, oh, we are possessed by the devil. Um, in the meantime, it's just really stuff that's happening naturally to everyone. So... What does this all have to do with ancient ruins and civilizations, you may ask? Everything. And we're coming to that. Some of the common denominators in religions are very important. I mean, even this morning I heard a, a, a wonderful thing that I haven't heard before from Anthony on our walk um, through the lovely town of Glastonbury. And, and just in, in Christianity, we learn that in the beginning there was the Word, the Word of God. In fact, the first action word in the Bible is God said, okay, which is a word. Um, it's a sound frequency. In Buddhism, we have Om as a sound being the primordial creative source. So here we have two, what is often regarded uh, as two uh, completely separate kind of religious beliefs, uh, and yet the founding um, philosophies of both uh, bring you right back to the same point of departure, which is the utilization of sound frequency by the divine being or the creator. And I just heard this morning that, that even in, in Egyptology, there is the bird that, that created the sound that was the primordial creative source of all things. And that's just wonderful when you start putting these things together and you realize that it's, you know, these ancient religions are not separated. They were actually, that it's the people that started running these religions that started introducing um, devices to separate the people to really rule by divide and conquer principles, which we understand very clearly today. In sacred geometry, this can be seen very clearly as the, the six days of creation uh, around the one. I mean, how many circles can you take, can you put around one circle? six circles around one and for those of you that study sacred geometry which i'm sure every single one of you does this you know this um they, they, there's your very basic understanding of these principal vibrational harmonic frequency principles that make up the whole universe and by just looking at this you realize that why everything is connected 
because everything has to touch because of the harmonic frequencies of sound. In Buddhism, we have this beautiful logo. These guys got together when they started Buddhism and said, listen, if we're going to compete with these Christians, we better have a good logo because they, they got a really cool logo. And they came up with this logo. And, you know, it's just, it's just, this is not what these people did. They didn't just come up with a logo and started making little, you know, medallions and selling them. Uh, this is something that actually happened because this is where the whole fundamental thing comes out of. This is really the shape that the, the primordial sound creates. And in, in Buddhism, we also have six aspects, like the six days of creation, six around one, six aspects of Om, the Omani Padme Hung. And suddenly you realize, whoa, we're dealing with exactly the same thing here. And um, we realize that these are also directly linked to the so-called platonic shapes. And the five major platonic shapes and the six or the royal one would be the star tetrahedron. The one on the left is the tetrahedron. That's the smallest um, area that any three-dimensional shape can take. And what makes these uh, platonic shapes very unique is because each one of those little sides is the same length as the other side in that particular shape. And I believe that these are the primordial frequencies that we're dealing with in Christianity, in Buddhism, and in many other aspects. Um, the cube is a particularly interesting one. And um, when you start looking at movies like Contact, for example, you'll notice that they have a sphere that is... Circling the square. I think it was the... Uh... Circling the square is a, a Masonic principle, but it's also, uh, you know, Egyptian. goes in, you know, sacred geometry. Part of sacred geometry. Dodecahedron. <laughs> correct? Dodecahedron. And then you got the cube inside it. And uh, once again, the work that we're doing with Willem de Swat um, supports all of this information, how this, this geometry works in crossing the dividing line between space-time and time-space. And it's all linked to these... In the beginning, there was the word of God and the primordial frequencies of the Om and so forth. And it gets really interesting. So there you've got the six primordial frequencies and you know, the, the, the void. And, uh, and then you got the stuff in the middle, which is probably the manifestation of these frequencies. It gives you that beautiful logo that the Buddhists use. <clears throat> the pioneers of sound arrived Keeley and Tesla. Royal Raymond Rife in um, 1930, uh, 19, that's, uh, 1931 um, was making some really interesting breakthroughs. And uh, they threw a in California where they declared him or called him the man who found the cure for all disease. Well, what did he use to cure all this disease? Very basically, sound frequency. And, um, and the Rife machine, the Rife resonator is coming back into, into I'm not sure how, how accurate or how close to the original machine it is, but what, what Rife did was he actually was the guy that made the first microscopes that could see living organisms, viruses, bacteria, cells, mitosis, division, all those things. And, and for a long time, they didn't believe him. 
they, they, he had to do a lot of convincing to mm -hmm. tell them this is really stuff that's really happening while we're looking at it. And um, when he found the disease, and there's lovely stories about how he cured the cancer and the cancer ward and 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 uh, things like that. And he was so unhappy with his, with his inventions that he gassed himself in his car. Uh, and uh, it was a tragic accident. Um, and he just disappeared before they could release his cures to the rest of the world. <clears throat> I'm sure the pharmaceutical industry is really good. John Keeley. He lived in the 1800s in Philadelphia and he was the real guy. I believe that Rife and Tesla learned most of their trades from John Keeley. He just did so much. But the tragic thing with John Keeley was when he died, uh, I think it was in 1894, his, uh, his entire laboratory was bought by a, a wealthy industrialist from. Um, Oh, escapes me. One of the big cities on the on the east coast, and move the entire lab to to his city and try and reconstruct his lab. When he couldn't get it to work, he declared John Keeley a fraud, and that's sort of where it ended. But what Keeley did was just absolutely amazing. I mean, he used once again what did he use? Sound vibrational frequency to crush rock, giant, you know, twenty-ton large uh, uh, monoliths that he crushed in in minutes uh, or even seconds into the finest powder he could levitate things with sound he uh, could drill holes any size any depth um, with microscopic precision this was the ultimate survival food of our forefathers cooled and sewn into bison hide bags weighing 90 pounds he was an extremely dense high protein and high energy food a single pound size any depth um, with microscopic precision and one of the most important things and impressive things for me is that the fact that he disassociated water with the sound frequency um, and got an incredible high set of I think 15,000 pounds per square inch um, if the reports are accurate um, from disassociating like three droplets of water with sound frequency all this information has unfortunately been lost because he's been deemed to be a fraud and um, all these guys worked with sound frequency. And then Nikola Tesla, obviously, most of you will know him, and um, all his work was confiscated by the FBI. When, when, he, when Nikola Tesla, he found that the earth rings like a bell, and in and, and, and much of his writing, he actually says the earth rings like a bell, and the sound frequency comes out of the earth on right all over the surface. And if you know how to tap into this frequency and this vibration, you can convert that into anything and any kind of tool that you want. And then he built his Tesla tower on the left. That's the tower that he built uh, in 1901 or 1902. They built that tower in Long Island in New York. And um, it, he was funded by a very interesting guy called uh, J.P. Morgan. And you obviously know what his intentions were. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan, um, he was probably the wealthiest man in, in North America at that stage. And the one thing that he did not know is that Tesla was building this tower under probably false pretenses. Because by that stage, Tesla has, had already invented and discovered this radiant energy, this free energy that, that traverses or, or travels through space instantly. It didn't travel like electricity you know, or at the speed of light or speed of sound or anything like that. It traveled instantly from point A to point B. 
and delivered this radiant energy, which is non-polar, non-lethal form of energy. And with that, Tesla wanted to wire up the whole world. And obviously, when when this guy Morgan discovered that Tesla was going to give the whole world free energy, that brought to an end the funding. And uh, and shortly afterwards, they came and chopped down the Tesla tower. But the saddest thing is that it wasn't just you know they, today if you can't pay your bills, they'll say sorry, close your bank account, and you go belly up. That's, that didn't go. You know, it didn't just happen. They sent in the FBI came in and confiscated all Tesla's work. So we know where all that information sits. It sits with the FBI. On the right-hand side, that's one of the one of Tesla's most brilliant inventions, and and we should be using it today. It's free energy. It's this light bulb, wireless light bulb, that that you could hold in your hand, and it just starts to glow. It picks up the energy from your body and starts to glow. This is not science fiction or something that somebody made up. This was done. Um, and there's some other interesting reports that. Tesla and Keeley might have collaborated on developing some of these lights to put into towns as street lamps because they discovered that there was a this specific frequency of light and this frequency that the light could emit that could cure all disease. And so as you walk down the street through these towns, you'd be cured of whatever it is you had. And that's an interesting concept. So that obviously went down the drain as well. Um, in fact, some of these lights, I'm not sure how you put them out. That's the question that I and that no one's answered yet. So you, you walk into the room and the light's hanging on the side, and as you walk in, it picks up your energy, and whoosh, the, the, the room you know, starts to glow. So how do you put it out? <laughs> so what does this all have to do with ancient ruins and civilizations? Well, it seems to me, and I'm going to show you, that it seems like Tesla, Rife, and Keeley just rediscovered what these ancient civilizations knew and what they were practicing over 200,000 years ago. And that really starts to boggle the mind and starts to tell us that we know nothing about ancient civilization, nothing about our real history, who we are, where we come from, why we're here. We need to start again and start realizing that there's a new body of evidence that we need to start dealing with that you're going to discover tonight. This is how we see ancients, ancient civilizations, and that is not a good thing, really. This has got to get us nowhere. Because if this is how we see ancient civilizations, then obviously we have a problem with these kind of structures. And you all know these structures very well. Incidentally, my take on this, I've been studying, looking at... Um, Stonehenge from a distance, from books and DVDs and documentaries, and um, when I arrived here the other day and went to Stonehenge, I nearly fell on my back, and I, I have a completely different take on this particular structure and its age, and I'll tell you right at the end what I think it is and how old it is. Um, this one, obviously, we know is much evidence being presented by geologists that the Sphinx is not just a few thousand years old, but probably at least 10 or 12 or 13,000 years old. Just really based on basic scientific evaluations. And this is what sometimes our academic friends that are paid to go and research something and dig for something and find clues and find evidence. When they find that evidence, they stop. Okay, so when you've got someone that's funded by somebody to go and dig to find something with an agenda, you know you're never going to find the truth. Unless you get individual, completely independent researchers who don't answer to anyone, I suppose people like me, 
and many others in this room and many others that have spoken at megalithomania this weekend, if you don't have an agenda or, or, or a funder, and maybe you're more likely to tell the truth. And then this, obviously, I mean, you know, this is ridiculous. This is really ridiculous. I don't know if some of you have seen the attempts on History or Discovery Channel when these really smart people try and show us how these people made these stones. It's just so ludicrous that it, you realize that whatever they're showing you, that's exactly not how they did it. You know, uh, put them on these stumps and roll them. And, and uh, there were some really incredible, really laughable, childish and foolish attempts to try and show us how they made these stones, how they made them fit together perfectly. Until you start contemplating vibrational frequency. And the concept of being able to manipulate the matter inside the rock and making it malleable and it changes everything I'm not talking about heat I'm talking about cool malleable rock that you can mold like plasticine and just let it set that at this stage remains the only real plausible scientific explanation otherwise everything else just seems really stupid and then obviously this one, North Bar, North, uh, Northeast Lebanon, the Temple of um, Baalbek, uh, it's known as Baalbek, or the Temple of Jupiter. Um, those are two people standing there, as you can see in the middle. Um, you can see the size of those rocks are actually quite spectacular. As far as I know, this, these are still the largest rocks ever carved, in, ever discovered, carved by humans, or think they're carved by humans. Um, we have no way of moving this today. You speak to engineers, you speak to people that work in industry and construction, and they look at this and they tell you, there is no way we're going to move this today. It's not possible. You might be able to do it with these giant cranes that work you know, in the harbors, but you've got to be right. In the modern world, we have estranged ourselves from the sacred dimensions of life because no longer do we consider it's not possible. You might be able to do it with these giant cranes that work, you know, in the harbors, but you've got to be right there and move it, not up a hill and put them into place and these, you know, perfectly positioned Lego blocks. Um, and then obviously these, these structures and... And we've been told some very interesting things about these structures, and, and you obviously know all this, but I find this quite laughable, and sometimes all you have to do is test the lie, okay? First of all, no mummy has ever been found in any pyramid, okay? No, it's, you obviously know this, but there are a lot of people out there that do not know this, and because every time they find a new mummy in Egypt, and it comes on the, on the 8 o'clock news or whatever, what do they do first? They show you a pyramid. They show a pyramid, and they show these guys with some dishcloths on their heads carrying mummy and and people think oh there's another mummy coming out of a pyramid somewhere well that's what happens and people are so indoctrinated by this and they, the lie is perpetuated so much that that's what pyramids are built for mummies and that's obviously not the case um, there was a beautiful incident recently where Zawi Hawass was, was being interviewed. They were showing the lost pyramid of uh, Khufu's brother, whose name I forget now. And, uh, and they were showing this pyramid. They found the foundations and, and, and they caught Zawi Hawass in this beautiful moment of where he just lost it. And he, says, and he said, just imagine all these pyramids being built for these pharaohs as burial chambers. It's just a pity that all the bodies have been stolen. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
And I went, I can't believe what I just heard him say. This is like, this is fantastic. We should must use this clip. <laughs> um, but I just want to share this with you because... We told that Primus built by 100,000 men over 20 years, the great pyramid, right? Now, I'm not going to go into the detail of what they were covered by this beautiful, smooth um, um, lime, limestone and, you know, perfect symmetry and all that stuff. And the, the giant 100-block granite inside and the 300-ton blocks inside and the 300 tons blocks inside. Let's just talk about the, the square stones that make up the outside of the pyramid. And... There's a guess that's going around about 2.6 million of these, right? So I do this normally in my workshops. I take out your calculator and you do the numbers, right? Let's see how plausible this is. 100,000 men over 20 years. If you do the numbers, from on your marks, get it, go. Carve the rock, get it into place, put it into place. Basically, what you have to do over a 20-year period, you have to put one of those blocks in place every two minutes. that we are told, just do a little bit of calculation, very quickly you figure out that it's not plausible, it's not doable, it didn't do, it didn't happen that way. And let's leave it at that, we know enough about the pyramids. What's really interesting is that some really brave archaeologists are coming out, and one of them is Carmen Bolter, Canadian PhD archaeologist, she's actually coming to visit me in South Africa next week, we're going to do some major explorations of the ruins of South Africa. She did a fantastic documentary called The Pyramid Code, five one-hour episodes, which is completely um, different from anything I've ever seen and is, is really exciting that we're getting real academics and archaeologists that are going out there on a limb and saying, okay, we've had enough of all this crap in the past. Let's start you know, spilling some of the real beans. And, um, and she goes out and calls, very simply calls it. They were resonating chambers for the creation of energy. Very simple. And we start seeing the repetition of this kind of information. Um, a very important thing that we need to identify is the definition of mythology. I found from my research that it was around 1270, that's how far back I can date it, where the word mythology suddenly changes from what it originally meant. The original meaning of the word mythos in Greek, mythology, is not what we use it as we use it today. The original meaning means words, written words, story, legend, historic events that were sworn to be accurate and true by priests and kings. Does it sound like fairy tales? Like imaginary things happening in the past? No, it's completely the opposite. So what we realize is that history and mythology are not separate events. In fact, mythology is history. And suddenly our human history takes on a completely different account, a different feeling. And suddenly we see all these weird, crazy creatures flying around and flying machines and all these things happening and the sons of the gods coming down and etc, etc. And building these amazing things and creating slaves to do this and that and because that's what it is. Mythology equals history. And we've got to start embracing that notion. Somewhere, somewhere, somehow along the way. Somebody changed the meaning of that word. Wait, when we start searching for human history, we find that many, many authors have been writing. They found their foundations and, and, and they caught Zawi Hawass in this beautiful moment of where he just lost it. And he says, and he said, just imagine all these pyramids being built for these pharaohs as burial chambers. 
It's just a pity that all the bodies have been stolen. <laughs> and I went, I can't believe what I just heard him say. This is like, this is fantastic. We must use this clip. <laughs> Um, but I just want to share this with you because he must be he, he must be bought and paid for by the energy fossil right? fuel. Now, uh, I'm not going to go into the detail what they were covered by. How much you want to bet they've given him millions of dollars um, to shut up um, and stay quiet about our and you know perfect and not let anybody do any research. Granite inside and the 300 ton, 100 ton blocks inside and the 300 tons blocks inside. Let's just talk about the, the square stones that make up the outside of the pyramid. And there's a guess that's going around about 2.6 million of these, right? So I do this normally in my workshops. So take out your calculator and you do the numbers, right? Let's see how plausible this is. 100,000 men over 20 years. If you do the numbers, from on your marks, get it go, carve the rock. Get it into place, put it into place. Basically, what you have to do over a 20-year period, you have to put one of those blocks in place every two minutes. Now, you know, so let's just test the rubbish that we're told. Just do a little bit of calculation. Very quickly, you figure out that it's not plausible. It's not doable. It didn't, do, it didn't happen that way. And let's leave it at that. We know enough about the pyramids. What's really interesting is that some really brave archaeologists are coming out, and one of them is Carmen Bolter, a Canadian PhD archaeologist. She's actually coming to visit me in South Africa next week. We're going to do some major explorations of the ruins of South Africa. She did a fantastic documentary called The Pyramid Code, five one-hour episodes, which is completely um, different from anything I've ever seen, and is, is really exciting that we're getting real academics and archaeologists that are going out there on a limb and saying, okay, we've had enough of all this crap in the past. Let's start you know, spilling some of the real beans. And, um, and she goes out and calls it, very simply calls it. They were resonating chambers for the creation of energy. Very simple. And we start seeing the repetition of this kind of information. Um, a very important thing that we need to identify is the definition of mythology. I found from my research that it was around 1270, that's how far back I can date it, where the word mythology suddenly changes from what it originally meant. The original meaning of the word mythos in Greek, mythology, is not what we use it as we use it today. The original meaning means words, written words, story, legend, historic events that were sworn to be accurate and true by priests and kings. Does it sound like fairy tales? Like imaginary things happening in the past? No, it's completely the opposite. So what we realize is that history and mythology are not separate events. In fact, mythology is history. And suddenly our human history takes on a completely different account and a different feeling. And suddenly we see all these weird, crazy creatures flying around and flying machines and all these things happening and the sons of the gods coming down. And Nuclear weapons. Et cetera, et cetera. And building these amazing things and creating slaves to do this and that. And because that's what it is. Mythology equals history. And we've got to start embracing that notion. Somewhere, somewhere, somehow along the way, Somebody changed the meaning of that word. Sworn by kings and priests. When we start searching for our human history, we find that many, many authors have been writing about the southern tip of Africa as the cradle of humankind. I know this because 
you know, we face it every day in South Africa. The cradle of humankind signs everywhere. When you go to Joburg, uh, you're in the cradle of humankind. That's what is being sold as to the rest of the world. And, um, but what they do is they take you know, Australopithecus and Homo erectus, they throw them into one pot and they throw humans in there and they say, see, honey, this is where we come from. And they forget that it's the, you know, it's a theory of evolution. It's not the fact of evolution. And then once again, we start getting these complete confused signals that we send people. But fortunately, the Sumerian tablets tell us a lot of this information in great detail. How we, where we come from, why we're here, who created us, for what purpose, and so forth. And then we find this really insane selective approach by historians. And this is where I get really frustrated. Because we get, they tell us about all this amazing stuff we've inherited and learned from the Sumerians. And the moment they start reading about these weird flying gods and the creation process and this and that, they go, oh, no, 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 we can't believe that. That's far too way out for us. I haven't read that in any text book so we can't believe it we're going to believe our textbooks and not the sumerian tablets so the one on the left for example is one of the these are two of the sumerian kings lists there've been several more found but these two are particularly interesting because they seem to corroborate each other and the one on the left talks about a period of 212,000 years it names it gives you the names of eight kings and the periods they ruled over a 212,000 year period before the flood the one on the right is even more interesting because that gives you names of about a, over 140 kings and probably more because it's, it's quite chafed as well. But it tells us at least 10, the names of 10 kings that ruled over a 224,000 year period. I believe 224,000 years before the flood. And we choose to disregard this information. <clears throat> Why are there two? Uh... It also tells us who Yahweh was, who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and all kinds of other interesting things, but we're not going to believe that. They were drunk. Mm -hmm. Things happening in the past. 140 kings and probably more humankind. I know this because, you know, we face it every day in South Africa. The cradle of humankind signs everywhere. When you go to Joburg, uh, you're in the cradle of humankind. That's what is being sold as to the rest of the world. Um, but what they do is they take you know, Australopithecus and Homo erectus, they throw them into one pot and they throw humans in there and they say, see honey, this is where we come from. And they forget that it's the, you know, it's a theory of evolution, it's not the fact of evolution. And then once again, we start getting these complete confused signals that we send people. But fortunately, the Sumerian tablets tell us a lot of this information in great detail. How we, where we come from, why we're here, who created us, for what purpose, and so forth. And then we find this really insane selective approach by historians. And this is where I get really frustrated. Because we get, they tell us about all this amazing stuff we've inherited and learned from the Sumerians. And the moment they start reading about these weird flying gods and the creation process and this and that, they go, oh, no, 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 we can't believe that. That's far too way out for us. I haven't read that in any text books so we can't believe it we're going to believe our textbooks and not the sumerian tablets so the one on the left for example is one of the these are two of the sumerian kings lists there have been several more found but these two are particularly interesting because they seem to corroborate each other and the one on the left talks about a period of 212,000 years it names it gives you the names of eight kings and the periods they ruled over a 212,000 year period before the flood 
the one on the right is even more interesting because that gives you names of about a, over 140 kings and probably more because it's, it's quite chafed as well. But it tells us at least 10, the names of 10 kings that ruled over a 224,000 year period. 224,000 years before the flood. 10 kings. And we choose to disregard this information. It also tells us who Yahweh was, who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, and all kinds of other interesting things, but we're not going to believe that. They were drunk when they wrote the stuff. Um, very important definitions. <laughs> the first Holy Trinity, in my opinion, is in the Sumerian tablets, and I believe that all other Holy Trinities and all other ancient religions and mythology and history probably you know, originate from these guys. The Sumerian Anu and Lil and Enki, the supreme commander of the so-called Anunnaki and his two sons. In the Bible, we meet the Anakim, the giants. Well, I don't see any difference between the Anakim and the Anunnaki. I believe they were the same group of beings. Yeah. And then we meet the Elohim. Elohim is a plural, never been a singular. So when you read the original Bible and it talks about the Elohim, you've got to contextualize this and know that the Bible is talking about the gods, not God. The gods did this and that. The gods did this and that. So everything that the Bible talks about the gods, it's pretty much a parallel of, a, of what the Sumerian tablets talk about the gods and all other ancient scripts. And then we find Allah, which is a derivative of Elohim, which means it's also a plural. And then we find Genesis 6 and various other references to the Nephilim and the sons of the gods and the watchers. And then you start realizing that we're dealing with a whole other history here that has really been pretty well covered. It up and all of the above always obsessed with gold you just cannot escape that the most important thing out of this however is that the bible and all these other ancient texts are a great source of information of a scientific nature with incredible a lot of people don't know this but the best way to get your gun is not by buying shots like 97 percent incredible information of understanding of physics and sacred geometry and all these things that have really been beautifully covered by these stories that lie on top but once you peel those stories away and you take the emotion out of it and this this whole sort of piousness out of it you start seeing this incredible information come seeping through between the cracks the three common denominators in all of ancient human history according to me gold slavery and the winged serpent you cannot separate humanity from gold, its obsession with gold, and especially humans, gods, obsession with gold. It's, it's, think about this, Adam on his own on earth, Eve had not yet been fashioned, and God already tells Adam in Genesis 2 that he wants to take him to the land of Havilah, where the water is good, the land is good, and there is gold. Because I want you to dig for the gold for me. And uh, slavery, obviously, that's an insane concept, how these early humans would have just suddenly come up with a, this concept of slavery, gone over the mountain, enslaved a whole bunch of Neanderthal people and said, you're going to come work for us. It makes no sense. Unless, somehow, along the way, they were given that idea by someone else. And it seems like this idea came from their gods. And then, obviously, the winged serpent. It's interesting that this, this image that is used today still by the modern medicine was probably one of the oldest symbols in the world and on earth in human history and the, the Sumerian entity Enki. 
And into the symbol, we can read all kinds of things. We can read a double helix of the DNA. We can read vibration frequency and matter. We can read levitation. We can read climbing the axis of Mundi. We can read all kinds of interesting encoded messages in this. And you realize that those three you cannot separate from human history. And also, if you start looking at ancient civilizations, the fact that the, the so-called winged serpent or the feathered serpent or the flying serpent is this common denominator in all these ancient cultures, including South Africa, Southern Africa, the Americas, and even in China, in the East, when you see the dragon with its little wings, it's not really a dragon, it's just a serpent, a winged serpent. And in Southern Africa, just to show you that this, this serpent worship is very, very alive and active, this is known as the Tadilo Caves in northern Botswana. The current dating on it is about 70,000 years old, but it's a lot older than this. I know this from speaking to Krater Mutwa, the wise shaman in South Africa, one of the wisest men that you'll ever meet. And he speaks very passionately about this particular site as the creation cave of the human race. And he says, it is this cave, the serpent worship site, and Adam's calendar, which you'll see a little later, which are the two most sacred sites on earth. And both of them are directly linked to the creation of the human race. What real evidence do we have of these early humans? Who were they? How did they live? What did they do? Well, let's get back to the history books again. Our current belief system is that Southern Africa was sparsely populated, very few inhabitants before about a thousand years. Until then, there was hardly anybody there. They throw out numbers like 5,000 people, you know, or maybe even less. And this, these are kind of numbers you deal with. And then you see these maps, and these maps look very impressive. It looks like these people really know what they're talking about. Look, those arrows pointing exactly the right direction. And, and that's where they came from, that big red blob up there. And so it really looks impressive. But it's just the biggest pile of rubbish you've ever seen. Because this has not got anything to do with the ancient history of Southern Africa. And um, we know this because the ancient stone ruins that we've been discovering tell us a completely different tale. The biggest and the saddest part of this is that these stone ruins that we've been discovering have been labeled as cattle kraal for so long now that they've just been completely ignored and you know the the roads department the forestry departments the town planning guys they just don't give a damn about these stone ruins when they come across them they just put bulldozers through them and just push them out the way so much damage has been done through sheer ignorance and I must add here, arrogance, because of the previous slide that you, should, that you saw, that nothing, nothing of significance ever came out of Southern Africa, that they just, you know, destroy probably the most precious and valuable ancient human um, structures that we have on this planet. Um, just to go take you through some of these very quickly, for those of you that saw them the other day, most important thing to notice is that they're all circular. And some of them have complex internal structures, some of them have very basic internal structures. And while they are circular, each and every one is completely unique. And that, to me, is a very, very important, significant discovery here, because that's not how we build structures today. 
and even if you look at the you know the, the African tribal um, settlements and that you see very similar the huts look exactly the same that's one hut repeated after the other well this is not what we see here we see every single stone circle is completely unique and that I can promise you that's a fact um, and then we see some really complex structures. This is the, the internal portion of a much larger circle, just to show you how complex they get. Um, some of these walls are about two meters wide still and about three meters high. And uh, then you start seeing that from the central circle, you start getting this interesting this sort of spider's web effect that goes out outwards. And sometimes the spider's web effect goes all the way down the mountain interspaced with other, other terraces and other stone circles. There's a very nice example of the basic And then you get these really complex structures. And then you see little teeny weeny circles inside the big circles. And this is really puzzling. And I must tell you that very little excavation has happened at any of these. This is a question I get asked all the time. Well, no one's excavated these. Well, they have done some excavation in these, but they never dig deeper than about a meter or maybe a meter and a half. And then they find something and then they stop. They say, ah, oh, you see, it was built by the so-and-so people. Guys, proof of habitation does not mean proof of construction. Isn't this the first rule of archaeology? Civilizations built on top of each other. Civilizations move and reoccupy previous civilizations' habitation, and they adapt it to their own. So we've got to go a lot deeper than a meter to start finding the real reason behind why these things are there. And then you've got some more interesting circular shapes inside other shapes. And what you will know once you studied this a lot, uh, a lot longer, you'll realize that these two circles were actually linked at one stage. It's just not that visible anymore. This is a very interesting structure that I'll show you a, lot a little bit later. And then you start seeing some really interesting shapes, like that horseshoe shape on the left with a little two towers next to it with a perfect circle in the middle. And once you start seeing horseshoe shapes, and you understand the principles of sound and the frequency, the alarm bell should start ringing. That something very strange and weird and sinister is going on here that we haven't figured out. Note the extended um, area that's been destroyed around the main structure. And this is the, the same thing happens over and over again. You just see these eroded, um, completely eroded areas around the main circular structures. And then you get thousands of these inside the forestry areas, destroyed by forestry. Many, many of them, countless of these stone circles have been destroyed by forestry. There's another one of those horseshoe shapes. That's inside a much larger stone circle. And then lovely aerial shot from a helicopter. And if you look in between these two, these two visible circles, if you look up here on the left, you'll see that there's actually a lot more there that's covered by soil. Now, it's important to note that none of these have any doors or entrances. And this is the big anomaly that our archaeologists find when they go there. So they'll make a note saying, oh, there's stone circles and this, and find no entrances, no doors, no entrances. But it must have been built by a small family of 15 to 20 people while they were migrating south. 
and this goes into the history books, this goes into the official records, and they just forget the fact that there's no doors or entrances. It just makes no, doesn't matter. They didn't need doors or entrances, these people. They were just migrating. <laughs> What's really interesting is, the other thing is that, did you guys count the number of stones in the circle? No. Well, do you know that there are about 500,000 stones that weigh between 20 and 50 kilograms in the stone circle? Oh, no, we didn't know this. Uh, did you know that these stones do not come from this area? Oh, no, we didn't really pay attention to that either. And do you know that they had to carry the stones, the 500,000 stones, this small family of 15 to 20 people, carry these 500,000 stones from two kilometers or more down the river at the bottom all the way up here to build this thing with no doors or entrances and they lived where while they were doing this they ate what while they were doing this and these basic simple questions that should come naturally to you know well learned if you're a screenwriter and you try books classes maybe even film school and you're still getting stuck this video may basic simple questions that should come naturally to you know well-learned people are just completely ignored and this is what really irritates me from